What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Best-selling author, hospitality entrepreneur, disruptive business rebel and social change agent Chip Connolly is a leader at the forefront of the sharing economy. At age 26, he found and took an inner city motel and turned it into the second largest boutique hotel brand in the world. Chip's books, Peak, and the New York Times bestseller, Emotional Equations, share his own theories on transformation and meaning in business and life. Chip was the CEO of his innovative company for 24 years, and in 2013, he accepted an invitation from the founders of Airbnb to help transform a promising home-sharing startup into what it is today, the world's largest hospitality brand, where he works as head of global hospitality and strategy. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine-to-five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Chip, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you? Sean, it's great. Uh, you know, I think we probably have fellow uh, Irish-American roots. Is that right? <laughs> you are very correct. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Awesome. Well, I, I want to start off. I want to read a quote by you, which uh, it, it really hit me, and I want to get your thoughts on it. So it's, to reflect on what I've learned as a business leader and as a human being, then share it with others in such a way that can make a positive difference has been one of the most satisfying and meaningful endeavors of my life. When you hear that, what do you think about? You know, there's a developmental psychologist named uh, Eric Erickson who um, – said that uh, when it comes to your legacy, uh, I am what survives me. I am what survives me. So I, I guess writing and speaking and inspiring and mentoring and all of these ways of sharing wisdom, uh, to me, are planting seeds out there into the future, uh, pro probably in some cases uh, after I've left this planet. So I, I just think that um, why, why hold all that inside? Why why <laughs> If you're building wisdom over time, um, why not share it with others? Well, I'm glad you you definitely decided to, and you've written a few books that I really enjoyed your work. You wanted to be an author at a young age, correct? Yep. And then what happened? Your dad uh, turned you away from that? Yeah. Um, so when I was a kid, I was uh, pretty much of an introvert. Uh, I've spent most of my adulthood as an extrovert. And yet as a kid, at about age 13, I said to my parents, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And my dad said that writers are either poor or psychotic, and most are both. And I didn't really know what psychotic meant, but it didn't sound good. Um, and so uh, 
I put all my energy into, you know, focusing on a more practical path, which was business. And uh, funny enough, ironically, after I'd been in business and, and started my company and run it for about a dozen years, I was asked to write a book. And I hadn't really done any writing. I didn't take any English classes in college, no creative writing classes, nothing. Um, and so I wrote my first book and the process of writing that book was so, um, empowering. And I just loved sitting down each morning and just seeing what would come through me. And so, uh, you know, I did, I did take the path my, my father wanted me to take was to become a practical, you know, ra rational, somewhat creative, wacky business person. Um, but then ultimately the writing was something that felt like a calling. Yeah, no, like you mentioned, all of your business experience eventually led to you becoming an author. So I think it was what, when you were at the age of 26, you started your business uh, in the hospitality industry. How'd that first come to be? Yeah, you know, so I'd studied real estate um, as sort of my primary focus in business school at Stanford Business School um, as a getting my MBA. Worked for a couple different real estate companies, including Morgan Stanley's real estate division. And um, then went to work for a real estate developer out of business school. And you know, I was bored. I, I wanted to do something more creative. And what was interesting in the mid-1980s is the phenomena of boutique hotels was just getting off the ground in the U.S. Uh, Bill Kempton and Ian Schrager had sort of gotten it off the ground in, in the early to mid-80s. And um, at age 26, with no hotel experience at all, I decided I was going to become a hotelier, a boutique hotelier, and, and buy a broken-down motel in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which is not a particularly nice, it's not, not a neighborhood you walk through, you run through it. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, against all odds, that place that I called the Phoenix, uh, the name of the company was Joie de Vivre, meaning joy of life in French. And uh, the first hotel, the Phoenix, became a, a rock and roll success story because all the musicians coming to town wanted to stay there. So that's how I got started. And then I created 52 boutique hotels during my almost two dozen years as the CEO and founder. I mean, it's funny, so far in this talk, there's already been two themes of almost you not having any fear as you dive into something completely new. You mentioned writing a few years into your career, and then also when you're 26, having no boutique hotel experience and starting this off. I mean, do you have that fear of failure, or do you really trust in, and believe in yourself that you're not really too worried about that? I have fear of regret. Huh, okay. I don't have fear of failure. And um, I wrote a book uh, six or seven years ago called Emotional Equations, and I really studied the nature of emotions and, uh, you know, everything from anxiety to happiness to, to regret and regret as an emotion is second, uh, two times as strong when you regret something that you could have done, but didn't do than when you do something that you did, but you didn't do it well, or you wish you hadn't done it. So in essence, you have a lot more regret when you actually don't do something. Why? Partly because that regret doesn't go away, um, especially if the opportunity was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at a particular time. Uh, you can't do that over again. You could try to you can try to to um, do it over in a new way, but you can't go back um, and do your you know your high school prom again. So, long story short, is I think my fear is in seeing something growing inside of me that I really care about and passionate about and want to explore and and then not pursuing it um so i you know I, i'm a classic silicon valley kind of person i guess which is the failure you know the 
there's a fixed, you can have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. Carol Dweck has done work on this at Stanford. And I think that, you know, trying to have a growth mindset, which means that you're going to try things, but you know, you'll fail, but you, you appreciate that you're learning best when you're actually stretching yourself. That's really described to me pretty much my whole life. I mean, so then that's how it was when you were 26. You understood going into that. You didn't want to have a regret here, or were you just excited about trying this as a new opportunity? I mean, I didn't know what it ultimately would lead to. I, I, about a year into it, I built a business plan saying, okay, let's, let's have 10 of these hotels in the next 10 years, which was a very audacious goal. Um, but, um, I think more than anything, what I really saw was I had a bunch of people sleeping on my couch. (laughs) (laughs) I was 26. I had, you know, couch surfing as a business and as a uh, piece of the lexicon didn't exist at that point. But when I had people go, coming to visit me in San Francisco, they weren't staying in local hotels. Um, and the, the two primary reasons were, number one, that ho- most of the hotels in San Francisco were too expensive. Number two is most of them were boring. And so I, my premise was I'm going to create a, an inexpensive, exciting sort of hip, hip hotel. And, um, and that's what I did uh, because I could see that there was a market for that. And that's been my thing, I think, my whole life is – being able to see the wave just over the horizon um, and seeing a market, um, a, a collection of people who may not be having their needs met properly. Um, and that's what I did with, with the boutique hotel business and with each of these different hotels with its own niche. And then that's what I've done the last few years with Airbnb, with the founders. And then I have a new project that I've just launched this year that's doing that again. Yeah, no, looking forward to talking about Airbnb and some of your future projects you have that you just begun. You seem like you have a ton of wisdom. How do you define wisdom? I, I there's a friend of mine, Bob Sutton, who wrote, wrote the No Asshole Rule and and some other books. He's a professor at Stanford. Um, he he defines it as just the perfect alchemy of confidence and doubt. And I like that. I like that. I don't I don't think wisdom is necessarily accumulating knowledge. Actually, I think wisdom is in some ways learning to edit what's extraneous and to actually distill what's most important. But it's that in tandem with knowing when you should have confidence and knowing when you should actually have doubt. And to me, that's another way of putting that is when to be a mentor, when to be an intern, when to be a sage, when to be a student. So to me, wisdom is being able to um, take all of what I've said here um, and, and distill all the experience and insight and pattern recognition that you have such that you can um, see what's essential and important um, and maybe what's true uh, beyond all of the clutter and distraction. Does that mostly come with time? You mentioned pattern recognition. I'm thinking for myself, 31, clearly you have so much more experience than I do. So is it about the time and you just have to put in the time to develop that pattern recognition or can you develop that from a young age much faster? I think you. I think um, I'm one of those people who believes that wisdom is something that you can actually cultivate, hmm. and therefore you can be young and wise. I also have, I'm, you know, sort of a believer in karmic and pa- karmic lives, past lives, etc. Meaning that I do think that you can bring into this lifetime sort of an, an awareness that is feels like it's not from just what you've learned in this lifetime. So for all these reasons, I, I think that um, just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise, and just because you're young doesn't mean you're not wise. But I do think that 
that pattern recognition, you have, thank you for calling that out, uh, Sean. I do think that the pattern recognition is something that gets better over time. And certainly for certain kinds of wisdom, like emotional intelligence, there's reams of data and research that shows that uh, EQ, emotional intelligence, is generally something you build over time. Um, and it's partly because of just the pattern recognition of humans. A lot of times in, in pro sports, they talk about the athletes, like the games almost being played in slow motion. Was there a point in your business career where you just thought things were just going so easy for you, where you could see things faster than normal? Uh, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's the circumstances too. The dot-com boom in the Bay Area. So my, my hotels, the 52 boutique hotels we created were all in California and the majority were in Northern California. And so between, gosh, 1995 and 2000, uh, we created, I don't know, maybe during that time, maybe 15 hotels. Uh, it's a lot of hotels in what, six years or so. Uh, and yes, I felt like everything was just perfect, but it was, it was two things happening at once. One was the circumstances of the dot-com boom were such that the extraneous or external uh, factors were allowing us to surf really well. Um, and, but secondly, we had created at that point a, um, a bit of a reputation and um, a really evangelical collection of customers such that, frankly, when the dot-com bust happened, it was clear that we had created loyalty, whereas some of our competitors hadn't. Um, but you know, you have to be careful about looking at when, when you're in the midst of success, how much of it is due to your individual things that you and your organization have done versus just external factors. And you learn the lesson in a downturn in terms of, uh, you know, did you, did, were you really a genius or were you just lucky? No, certainly some profound insights there with the, with the dot-com bubble and what you had to work through. And a minute ago, we were talking about wisdom and you have your new book coming out in September, uh, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. What inspired you to write that? So I was, you know, at, at age 50, um, approximately age 50, just right before my 50th birthday, I sold Joie de Vivre, my company, partly because we'd gone through the Great Recession. We got, I got through two once-in-a-lifetime downturns in the same decade, the dot-com bust and then the Great Recession. And I was tired and I was, frankly, um, I was at a place where I was like, I'm ready for something new. So I sold the management company and the brand. I actually held on to the real estate of many of the hotels with partners I owned those hotels with. So it allowed me to still own real estate and make money from that, but not have to be running a company with 3,500 employees. So there's a great quote from the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro where he, uh, he says, um, musicians don't uh, retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And uh, I think that's how I felt. I was in my early 50s. I still had music inside me. I wasn't sure who to share it with. Uh, and then the three founders of Airbnb approached me uh, with their small little tech company at that point. It was um, early 2013. Um, if you do the math now, what, like, let's see, the company's been around 10 years. I've been around for, I was been around for five and a half of the 10 years that the company's been around. And about 97 to 98% of the business we've ever done has happened in the last five and a half years. So we were a small company five and a half years ago. And I didn't really understand Airbnb's model or like who would want to sleep in someone else's home? Why not stay in a hotel? I had been the interloper, sort of the outsider when I was a boutique hotelier, but now I was the classic insider, the establishment, and I didn't really understand this disruptive wave that was coming. Long story short is um, I joined the company. I became a mentor to Brian Chesky, the CEO, 
And I also became head of global hospitality and strategy. But what I learned quickly was as even though I was supposed to be a mentor and I was, I needed to be an intern just as much because at age 52, I'd never worked in a tech company before. So I didn't understand the lingo. I actually frankly didn't understand our core customer base, which at that time was millennials. And so I was a boomer who was really out of place. I was twice the age of the average employee. So my definition of um, of what a modern elder is, is that the person as a modern elder is as much of a wisdom seeker as they are a wisdom keeper, meaning they're as much a, an intern as a mentor. So my experience at Airbnb and my success there um, really revolved around the fact that I was an aging body and a beginner's <laughs> mind. Um, and I really, I had the perspective that you know, at times I'll be I'll be the dumbest person in the room because I don't I don't understand what's being said. But that meant I was asking a lot of why and what if questions. And some of those why and what if questions I asked, which are sometimes very naive questions a four-year-old might ask, were the kind of questions the company needed to ask because we had some blind spots. So along the way, I, I feel like um, I learned a lot. I learned that as power is escalating to the young in a digital economy faster than ever before. There's probably the value in matching that young brilliance with some, you know, uh, seasoned wisdom. Um, and that's what I was. And so funny enough, I had been a 26 year old entrepreneur once, and then all of a sudden I'm 52 and I'm helping a bunch of 20 or 20 year olds, uh, run their company. And I loved it. I mean, that's what I'm so fascinated by. I mean, 26 years of experience, you come in one of the oldest, if not the oldest in the company. What role did humility play in all this? Because I'm assuming you could have came in and said, hey, it's, it's my way or the highway. This is how it should be done. And, and you had such a growth mindset when you entered that scenario. Such a great question. You're, you're, a, good, you're, you're a good interviewer, Sean. Um, I, I, you're absolutely right. I had to go from hubris to humility. And I do feel like that is one of the <clears throat> paths that happen uh, as, you, as we get older is we realize we don't know it all. Uh, we realize we have failures along the way. Um, and so one of the things I had to quickly determine is like, how do I, after having been my own CEO and own boss for so long, how do I have this strange role where I'm both the mentor of my boss, um, but I also am, you know, accountable to him and the company for a bunch of different departments so the, I, the fact that I was open to um, mentoring privately and interning publicly um, was what I think helped me to succeed. Because instead of trying to prove to everybody I was smart, I was actually open to showing what I didn't know. And, and, and yet having this point of view where I'm curious, I want to learn more. And I think a lot of times people later in their career feel like um, the receptacle that is their knowledge is, is, has no more water left to, to, to put in the pitcher. And therefore, you know, you don't, you, you're not learning anymore. And uh, that's to me when, you know, you, know you're, you, you do become irrelevant. And so I, I got that for me to be successful at Airbnb, I needed to be the most curious person in the room. You mentioned that mentor-mentee relationship with Brian. How did you first become involved with Airbnb? Did he seek you out as a mentor? Because I'm thinking the average age of Airbnb at the time was 26 years old. What made Brian want to bring you on at the time? 
Brian's got a growth mindset like nobody I've ever met. I mean, he, you know, he reached out to the former head of the CIA, George Tenet, to ask about security and safety issues. He went to Sheryl Sandberg to learn about how to create a global company. He, he went to um, John Donahoe to understand marketplaces because John was, you know, at that point, CEO of eBay. So it, it was not an unusual for Brian to come to me as a seasoned boutique hotel exec um, who had a creative flair uh, for things and, and say, I want you to help us become a hospitality company. People see us as a tech company, but when we grow up, we really want to be a hospitality company. So um, the fact that he reached out to me and then he asked me to, it's almost like a, a test run. I had no idea. When he reached out to me, I thought it was just like, okay, I'll just give you some advice on occasion. And then he said, well, why don't you come and give a speech at our headquarters to all of our employees about what does it mean to be a hospitality company and you know, tell us the history of innovation in hospitality. So I did that. I didn't realize it was a dress rehearsal for him to hire me. I wasn't looking for a job necessarily. I was looking to help. And I said, okay, I'll help. You know, yes, you, I'll be an employee at eight hours a week. We agreed on 15 hours a week. But about three weeks into it, I was doing 15 hours a day. And I said to Brian, I think you misheard me. I was saying 15 hours uh, a week, not 15 hours a day. And he laughed. He said, caught you. And at that point, he knew that the only way it was going to work is that I was either all in or not. And so at that point, three weeks in, I could see the business model and how successful the company was on the path to being. But I was also seeing how many glaring things needed to be worked on and fixed. Uh, and so at that point, I basically cleared my calendar for the next four years, <laughs> which is sort of a true statement. And like said, okay, I'm all in. And I did it for four years. And, uh, and now for a year and a half, I've been a strategic advisor to the founders. I mean, you mentioned these glaring deficiencies that, that you saw right when you came in. Is there anything that you implemented or changed that you just thought, without a doubt, you left your impact on the company with that? Well, I think, you know, I'd say three or four areas, a diverse, first of all, the company's a great company and it would have been a great company without me. So I want to start by saying that and have my humility in check and my, my hubris in check and my humility, <laughs> uh, because, you know, it, it, the company was on a good path. I think there were a variety of things that I was able to do that helped us accelerate our growth, have more credibility in the hospitality business, um, and increase our guest satisfaction. So some of these examples are, number one is um, completely revamping our review system. Uh, and I won't go into the, the, the details, the sausage making on that, but the review system, that we had a peer-to-peer -peer review system, which is great. I mean, the hotel industry doesn't have that. And uh, so that was something, you know, using Yelp and, and um, TripAdvisor and other sort of peer-to-peer -peer review systems, they had already had that in place, but there was some important flaws in it that were actually making it less effective. Um, we made a bunch of changes to it. And ultimately, our guest satisfaction today is 50% higher than the hotel industry, which is a shocking statistic. But we use the same uh, metric, which is called NPS, Net Promoter Score, as as the hotel industry, and you know, our net promoter score is 50% higher than the, the hotel industry um, globally. So that happened partly because the review system created a really effective feedback loop. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to have experiences on Airbnb that, that don't go well. And you, we sometimes those are high profile in the news. You don't hear about you don't hear about them in the news if, if someone throws a party a party in their suite 
at the hotel and everything keeps the whole hotel awake. That doesn't happen. That doesn't go on. But, you know, obviously it does happen. If that something like that happens in a neighborhood, it, it affects more people. So and we're a new player and therefore we get more attention. But I'd say that's one area that, that I just um, helped to improve. I think another area was just host quality and how do we have an empathy for what it means to be a host? There's no doubt. And I think anybody in the company would still say it a year and a half later. I was the number one advocate for our hosts globally. And that meant I was going around the world, meeting with hosts, doing host events, doing host workshops, creating the Airbnb Open, which was the the huge global event where, you know, in our third year in Los Angeles, we had 20,000 people from almost 110 countries come to it to teach each other and share best practices. So building a host community that was vibrant and felt like the company was listening to that was important. Um, I'd say another area was just building a learning and development department for the company. Um, Brian asked me to do that a month after I joined. I was like, okay, let's help figure out a way to teach uh, young managers to lead you know, their direct reports. And so I think creating a, 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 real, a, a, a sort of a mutual mentorship kind of environment where people are constantly teaching each other um, was part of the reason that uh, Airbnb in 2015 became the best company to work for in the U.S. based upon um, Glassdoor ratings. So I, those are some areas, but I think that one of the other areas that that uh, Brian would probably cite if you were asking him was, I was like the secretary of state to the travel industry. There was nobody in the company who had a travel industry background, which is sort of weird for a travel company. <laughs> um, not only did nobody in hospitality, but nobody in the travel business. Uh, you know, when I joined, there were 300 people, and everybody had primarily a designer or tech background or legal background. So, being the um, person who went out to uh, travel conferences, hospitality conferences, and then had people throwing tomatoes at me um, because, because of course, we were the disruptor. But actually helping the industry understand what we're about didn't necessarily mean we solved all of our problems in terms of regulations and uh, in certain cases having, you know, adverse reactions from certain industry um, organizations. But it absolutely made us a credible player in the in the in the in the field, in the world uh, of hospitality and bringing, you know, Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott and his senior leadership team to Airbnb for a day and a half so we can do an immersion so they could understand what we're all about and um, how to market to millennials. Uh, this kind of sort of face-to-face diplomacy, um, I think actually helped us create a certain level of acceptance in the hotel industry. Now, again, there's certainly uh, still uh, some problems between Airbnb and the hotel industry, but it's not nearly as bad as it was five years ago. When speaking for myself and I'm trying to solve a big problem or I'm looking to be more creative, usually what I try to do is whatever my problem is, say it's, I'm trying to solve a problem in the hotel industry, I'll look at something completely outside of that realm um, of my core competency to really spark some creativity. Do you do that at all? Or do you see that with Airbnb? I know you mentioned uh, Brian, he met, went and met with CIA and things like that. Does that company constantly do that? And are you? Yeah, yeah, we we um, I did that at Joie de Vivre in my company, and I've done it at Airbnb. And it, it, sometimes, you know, it was like uh, at Joie de Vivre, it was like, why is it that the mid-priced hotel segment in the hotel industry is so design challenged? Now, it's not true today, but 20 years ago, it was like, why isn't there a Gap of hotels? Because Gap was sort of you know mid-priced 
fashion and, and sort of made mid-price, you know, acceptable, whereas previously it was all Sears and Montgomery Ward and, you know, bad clothes, you know, in, in, you know, in sort of mid-price uh, clothing, clothing companies. And um, so I, I, I like to always say, well, why is it, why can't we do it like they do? Why can't we be um, the, you know, fill in the blank of, of th- this particular part of our business? So Airbnb, we constantly would study other industries. We, um, I like to, I've in the past taken my senior executives and my direct reports out to an art museum and spent two hours at an art museum just roaming around literally, or, or, and, you know, or just going for a walk on the beach or going to the zoo. One time we took our senior leadership team to the zoo with the intent of saying like, what's there to be learned out there? Because one of the challenges with our brains is you get so habitual that you um, you, you lose the capacity to have serendipity and and sort of like the you know, spontaneous epiphanies that often happen when opposing thoughts are lodged in your brain at the same time. And so I, I, I'm a big believer in the idea that um, putting yourself in a different habitat can help you to think differently. That's fascinating. I actually ended up going to the zoo last week <laughs> to spark that creativity. And oh, I mean, but- yeah, you have so much experience in the travel industry. And I'm just thinking of, of a sponsor of our podcast, Globekick, which cultivates these travel experiences for the millennial. And, and what are you seeing right now in the travel and hospitality industry that just needs to be disrupted? Is there anything right now? Well, I think the idea that there's digital nomads and there's global nomads that, you know, the, the moment, you know, January 2007, the iPhone came along, um, was the moment that all of a sudden the travel industry should have rethought its purpose in life. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, here we were 11 and a half years later, and the idea that there are people out there traveling um, and they may not even have a, a home that they own or an apartment that they rent. They're just sort of on a sojourn and they can be mobile because they've got, you know, uh, you know, a laptop and a, um, a, a smartphone and a Wi-Fi connection and they can do their work anywhere. And we see that, you know, we see that in companies like remote year and, 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 and the like. Um, and so, I think what the hotel industry got wrong and what the what the travel industry needs to look at is how do you create extended stay lodging that is shorter than, you know, the normal monthly rental or annual rental you have to do for a, an apartment, but longer than staying in a hotel. And the, the historically, the hotel industry has offered extended stay America or embassy suites or re- residence in as the product for these people. And those products are like awful. They're just like not, they're like, they're for the poor, you know, uh, McKenzie 27 year old who's on a project, you know, for three weeks who stands to stay in a, you know, totally antiseptic, banal kind of hotel like that, that's extended stay oriented. So it's right, you know, Airbnb came along and I think part of Airbnb's, you know, one of the things we've done well is to satisfy that market. But I think that there's more and more needs for um, for the for the for the traveler who's doing an extended stay somewhere. Um, I think that's one key. Um, another area that I think just the idea of localized travel and experiences is something that we introduced at Airbnb almost two years ago um, with our experiences platform. 
Um, but I think that has a long, a long way to go in terms of just, just the, the amount of um, ability, the number of places you could actually connect with locals and, and even just the personalization. I, that to me, it's, it's a travesty that I can't go onto some website in the world, plug in my information about the kind of things I'm interested in, find a traveling tribe of people, an archetype, like let's say there's 16 archetypes of travelers, find the tribe that's my tribe of the 16, and then have a, a social media um, and sort of almost forum-based uh, relationship with those people so that if I'm going to Edinburgh, um, and that my tribe, my tribe might be the explorer tribe as opposed to the, um, uh, the diva tribe. My explorer tribe is like, okay, this is what you do in Edinburgh that you're going to enjoy. We, we still rely pretty heavily on just our own personal social media, uh, our friends and our friends don't necessarily have the same tastes we have. So I think that's an opportunity, the whole personalization and um, <clears throat> the ability for using data to basically create create itineraries for people. That's so funny how you brought that up about having the the social platform as well, because you actually just described that company I mentioned, Globekick, to a T. I might have to, oh. to link you up with uh, their CEO and just maybe bring you on as a strategic advisor. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And I think Airbnb has a huge opportunity there, but we've We've been slow to actually implement uh, a, you know, a, a that kind of personalization. I mean, you mentioned implementation and something that you're new. You're working on your new venture. I think it's Modern Elder Academy. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, you know, of course, people have to like digest the idea of what's a modern elder. And <laughs> I, I said earlier in the podcast that to me it's different than a traditional elder. But think about it this way: midlife uh, has historically been defined as 45 to 65. But because power's moving to the young faster, and in certain kinds of geographies and in certain industries, midlife starts starting at 35 because people start feeling a, a little bit irrelevant at 35. And it goes to 75 because you're going to live to 100. So, my God, midlife has become a, mar- a marathon from 35 to 75. Uh, and yet, historically, um, if you look at rites of passage and celebrations, I, I'm a big festival fan and fascinated by them. I'm on the board of Burning Man, and I'm fascinated by religious pilgrimages. But historically, we used these rites of passages and, and celebrations as a, mean to help, a means of helping people through transitions. So for example, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, uh, quinceañeras, were all about helping people through puberty. Um, and you, know, you have bridal showers and uh, weddings for people having babies and getting married. You have you know, funerals for people and they die. That's the ultimate transition. We don't have anything to help people through the transitions that occur during midlife. And it's sort of shocking, but it's partly because, frankly, in the year 1900, the longevity in the U.S. was 47. So midlife was 25. So, you know, like, okay, well, that's when you're having babies and you're having, you know, getting married and things like that. So there wasn't there wasn't a need for a ritual, but there is today. And so the Modern Elder Academy is the the premise is that people need a midlife pit stop um, that allows them to refuel and repurpose themselves, uh, knowing that they have a lot more time ahead of them to be relevant uh, in society. So it's on. Uh, it's the first of its kind in the world. Um, it's also we could, we think the category could be called a midlife wisdom school. Um, it's in in Mexico on the coastline, Pacific uh, Ocean coast 
of Baja, uh, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. Uh, and it opened on a beta basis in January. We had 153 people go through either a week-long or two-week-long program, and we opened to the public in November. Uh, and so, yeah, people are going to be applying and coming on down and, and learning how to repurpose themselves. I mean, it sounds like you picked a terrible location, huh? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have been there on the beach already. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think one of the signs of wisdom is to be able to understand the collateral costs and benefits of the decisions you make. So, so a lot of times we make a decision, there's a particular thing we're focused on, but we don't realize on the on the margins there are some collateral costs and benefits. Well, you know, I love living down there part of the time and having this academy allows me to be down there more often, which is a good thing. No, good for you. I mean, you're such a disruptor. I love this conversation and hearing your thoughts around all of this, but you just mentioned a minute ago your involvement with festivals and Burning Man. What what drew you to festivals and then what's your role with Burning Man? So um, what drew me to the festivals, I think it, the more digital we get, the more ritual we need. And what I mean by that is um, there's, we're awash in URLs, uh, websites, but what we really need more of is the IRL experience, which is in real life experience. And so what does that mean? It means how do we create environments where collective effervescence can sort of can emerge? Um, this is a, a term, collective effervescence, that comes from Emil Durkheim, a sociologist from 110 years ago, when he studied religious pilgrimages. And he, what he saw was that people's sense of ego separation would evaporate and what would show up in its place was this uh, this sense of communal joy. So I started going to festivals in a substantial way 20 years ago uh, before we were even more digital. But I joined the Airbnb, I'm sorry, I joined the uh, Burning Man board um, about eight years ago when we were we were going to take the for-profit Burning Man event and turn it into a nonprofit, and so it actually had a, a more of a global um, social entrepreneurship footprint in terms of what it was doing. And um, so I ended up creating a website called Fest Three Hundred that then merged with a company called Everfest, which was uh, which is the best festival discovery website in the world. And um, I, in 2013, I went to 36 festivals in 20 countries. Um, and I'm fascinated by what happens when you bring humanity together and, and people have the chance to connect face-to-face in an environment where there's, there's not the digital distractions of smartphones typically. So I was at um, a festival in India called Maha Kumbhamela, which was with 100 million people at the Ganges River. Now that was fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Partly because it was like, wow, that is something, you know, I'll probably never experience again. So, um, but, you know, learning how people connect, you know, uh, when they're in an environment that creates the space for them to really connect on a deeper level is, um, is fascinating. Is that what it's all about? Human connection? I mean, you have so much experience is is that what really carries you today? Those different connections you get with people. E.M. Forster uh, wrote the book Howard's End and a bunch of other books. And the epigraph he had at the start of that book, which I think was may have been his last book that he wrote, was "Only connect." Just those two words. The book starts with just "Only connect," and supposedly that's what he said on his deathbed as well. "Only connect." 
Um, so the idea of connection existed way before we had a computer, way before we had social media, way before we had a LinkedIn to connect with each other. So the idea of connecting is something that's, I think, quite primal. It speaks to the idea of what humanity is all about. Um, and so I do feel that that is, to me, the thing that actually defines us as different than you know the, the robots and artificial intelligence and computers that we work with is the sense that there's a there's a human connection to be made and at the end of the day you know no, whether it's going to a festival or going and staying in a hotel or staying in someone's home at Airbnb it's that human connection that is resonant and typically if you read people talking about their experiences when they have the best experiences of their life it's it's often about that human connection along the theme of connection is there a few people, one or two, that maybe entered your life that without a doubt, if they had never come in, the trajectory of your life would be entirely different? Wow, that's a great question. Um, my parents, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here without them. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think that there's, a, I have a friend in Mumbai um, who I just saw a few months ago. I, he's, I, he's been one of my best friends for five and a half years now. He's like a soulmate. His name's Dara. And I think, you know, he's half my age and we, we just connected incredibly deeply. There's clearly a past life connection we've had. And I think what he helped me to do is to live one of those 10 principles of Burning Man down to my toes, which is the principle of immediacy, to be in the moment, to, to actually be not in the past, not in the future, but just to be here now. Um, you know, to, he's he's remarkable in terms of his capacity of do, to do that, and um, you know, so I think I, it helped me with my meditation practice as well as my just sense of having presence by just you know observing him. I mean, immediacy is something I struggle with, so without a doubt, I'm going to make note of that and make sure I'm really concentrating on that not only today but the rest of the week and remainder of the year. You mentioned your meditation practice. What does a typical day look like for you? Do you have any other things you implement or structure your day around to be more successful there? Well, I try to meditate each morning, um, and I'd say when I'm down in Mexico, which is where I am half the time, it happens every morning. There's like it doesn't. It always happens. Um, when I'm in San Francisco, where I live part of the time. Um, it happens about half the mornings. It did not happen this morning um, yet. Uh, but it's um, that's a really great centering tool for me. It sort of helps me to just get in touch with my breath and be able to sort of um, wash away. It's like, you know, it's like a snow globe. If you have a snow globe and you shake your snow globe, and that's our life. Our life is sort of a, a shaken snow globe. When you actually slow things down, all of that, all of those snow in the air goes down and you can see through the snow globe. And so meditation for me helps create clarity. It helps create a precision of just seeing things. Um, and so that's one thing. I, I exercise a lot because that gets me out of my head. Um, I, I fast on occasionally, uh, occasionally because it actually slows me down, strangely enough. A fast slows you down. Um, and you know, I do my best to, to have a writing practice. Um, when I'm writing a book, of course I'm writing, but I, you know, I, I do a lot of writing early in the morning and that's a, a great opportunity to 
allow my writer to wake up before my editor and to just channel big thoughts that are out there without, um, you know, self editing. Well, Chip Conley, this has been absolutely fascinating for me. I know the listeners are going to get out of this. I entered this conversation hoping to get something out of it. And the amount of things you brought to the table were more than I could have ever hoped for. You have your new book coming out, Wisdom at Work, The Making of the Modern Elder. Where else can listeners stay connected with you? What else do you want them checking out? Thanks, um, uh, Shona. I, I, you know, my website is chipconley.com, uh, and the Modern Elder Academy website is modernelderacademy.org. Those are two places to go. And I'm on most of the social media, or pretty much every, all the social media. Uh, it with, I, I do a lot of writing uh, on LinkedIn, um, so you'll see a lot, of, a lot of my articles there. Awesome. Well, Chip Conley, I can't thank you enough. Uh, best of luck with everything you have going on and looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Sean. Been great to connect. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.